Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we deal with customer perceived value and all that goes into producing, growing, building, selling, and pricing it. Uh, today, I'm thrilled uh, to have a, a guest, uh, Martin Lewis. Do say hello. Hello, Mark, and it's good to be here with you. Martin's a, a consultant, kind of like I am. Uh, tell me more. Tell us more about your background. Sure. Um, I- Amazing number of years, 40 years in sales and marketing. So yeah, I started uh, way back in the 80s, early 80s, as a frontline sales guy, and then sales management. I did a little bit of time in marketing, back as a VP of sales, uh, back as a VP of marketing for a billion dollar company. And then my final corporate role was CEO for a company where I had 700 salespeople working for me. And uh, after that, I decided enough of corporate life. And 20 years ago, I started my own company, Market Partners. That's great. And so uh, if people want to get a hold of Martin Lewis, uh, also author of How Customers Buy and Why They Don't, uh, why don't you not wait until the end of this podcast? Why don't you uh, also give your contact information here at the beginning? Sure, Mark. Thank you. And yeah, I always love talking to people about this topic, as you and I know. (laughs) So I'm M. Lewis, one word, M-L-E-W-I-S, at market-partners.com. So Martin, um, you and I have gotten to know each other, and I met you uh, reaching out after I had seen uh, a quick video that you had put out on to LinkedIn, I believe, talking about the customer's journey, which is um, kind of at the core of uh, where you try to focus uh, businesses, which I think is fantastic. So why don't you kind of tell us a little bit more about um, why that's important, uh, what's different about what you do, and um, we'll use that as kind of a springboard for the conversation. Sure, Mark, and thanks again. Uh, Well, as I said, I've got many, many years of uh, sales background. And when I started my company 20 years ago, we were really looking at sales process. I guess I'm partly analytical. And so as a sales guy, I used to kind of try and boil down what the success factors were and look at a sales process. Um, so when I started Market Partners, we really started as kind of looking at how we can introduce sales process, but in a way that is very compelling to salespeople. So we did that, and about uh, 17, 18 years ago, one of my clients asked me to talk to their customers. And he said, you know, I don't get why some of our customers aren't buying, so could you talk to our customers? And of course, I've always felt it was a good idea to talk to customers, but I very specifically zoomed in and we talked to their customers about what they're doing. And it was a revelation to me to listen to so many customers talk about why they were not buying. They understood the product. They believed there was a good ROI, but they still were not buying. And that kind of fascinated me and really helped with that engagement. Then for the next few years, we made that a theme of what we did. We always talked to our clients, customers, about how they buy, what's going on behind the curtain, as it were. And more and more, I saw this huge disconnect between how companies sell and how their buyers buy. Now, we all know why somebody should buy, why they should buy but how they're going to buy and why they would not started to really fascinate me. We saw this as a recurring theme again and again and again. We also saw in a particular market that customers buy in a very predictable way. Customers for a particular product were always telling us the same kind of story about how they buy. And finally it hit me, finally it hit me that you could have the best sales process in the world 
it doesn't mean you're going to get an order. The real process that gives business is the buying process. And we've got to stop looking and obsessing about the sales process and start really focusing on the buying process and how as sales and marketing professionals, we move a buyer through their buying process. So that was kind of our fascination and that's where we've arrived today. And for the last 10 years, we really done nothing else but start every one of our engagements by looking at how our customers buy. You know, I love that. Um, I use the expression, you can't push a rope. Um, <laughs> because that, that is the reality. Um, you, you have to decide, how, determine how the customer is going to buy. And I think right now, um, a lot of buyers are in the midst of distraction. We're recording this um, a couple months into COVID quarantine and about a week and a half after uh, a lot of um, civil unrest, uh, racial unrest in the country. So right now, as we're recording this, uh, the environment that we're talking in right now is one where customers are fearful, exasperated, desperate, uncertain, and if you are trying to sell them, you're trying to introduce one more change into their world. And you've got to figure out a way in a hurry to, to figure out how to be one of the more visible, valuable, um, less risky changes that they're considering making, because uh, otherwise they won't. Now, we totally agree. We've done some research over the last few weeks about how this is going to impact how customers buy. Ironically, it doesn't change an awful lot about how customers buy. It's going to change an awful lot about what they buy. It's going to change a lot, a lot of what they're thinking about as they go through their buying journey. And you use the word, and I couldn't agree more, we're going to see people a lot more risk averse. If you're changing their world, if you're bringing something in, even if they believe it's a better way than they're doing it today, if they're okay with what they're doing, if it's good enough, they are likely to stay with what they're doing rather than risk moving to something different. Boy, yeah, I couldn't agree more. When I was doing a lot of sales training for one of the big sales training companies, uh, we reminded everybody that even when the customer tells you nothing has changed, if they've reorganized themselves or if there's been some big shock to the company, everyone involved in your buying process will have dug into an ever deeper foxhole and they aren't even putting their eyes over the rim of that thing. They are, in, they are huddled and hunkered down um, for the rule of thumb that I use is about six months. Uh, they're afraid to make any decision. And now you have to figure out how to get them to believe that making a decision is safer than hunkering down. Exactly. And that, that comes down to two sides of the equation that Mark, you and I have talked about before. There's the value side of the equation. What will they gain? And then there's a the risk side. And we almost invariably see organizations uh, really trivializing the risk. When they look at their own offering, they say, well, this is fairly simple. They can implement it this way or they can use it that way. And it's simple. When we talk to the buyers, they don't see it that way. They talk about they're going to have to change something. They may have to change a work process. They may have to acquire something else, train people, who knows what it is. But we invariably see that the buyer is more, much more concerned about change and risk than the supplier thinks they should be. 
So the two sides of the equation, as well we know, is one side is what am I going to get from this? The other side is what's my risk? And so we can only do two things. We can turn up the value, which is what most people focus on, or de-emphasize the risk and the change, which is, I think, exactly what is required. Yeah, and uh, it's worth noting that you didn't mention changing the price because the price not only doesn't affect the risk, uh, the risk was already way more pronounced in the customer's mind than any price adjustment you can afford to give. But when you drop your price, you actually communicate to the customer uncertainty or unworthiness. So you actually can, uh, in a lot of times, increase the perceived risk when you drop the price. I, I just could not agree more that we've got to be confident that the price we're asking represents fair value. We've got to be able to, to stand on that. Uh, as you say, by giving unearned discounts, dropping the price, you are signaling that the value is questionable, without a doubt. One thing that's really of interest, or one thing that's really interested me, is when, when you're stuck in a sales cycle, per se, and the customer isn't buying, ask them if they would go ahead if the price was zero. And it's really interesting because many times they say, well, no, not at the moment, no. And you say, well, really, if, if there was no cost to doing this, what would you do? And uh, that will tell you an awful lot. It's not about the price. It's about the change. It's about the risk. It's about accommodating whatever they say they need to do when they bring that new offering in. Yeah. Um, I think we've probably all seen the, the research, different studies with lots of different groups talking about um, the success uh, percentage, you know, the su success factors or um, percentage of, you know, percentage of projects that fail to meet uh, initial goals. And when it's a technology project, it's, you know, 50%, 70%, depending on how you measure. And every customer knows that if I'm going to be buying something, there's a chance that it's going to fail to meet objectives. And the risk there isn't just the financial risk. What are some of the other risks that they're, that they are considering more highly than risking the company's money? It's a great question because customers will often not tell you. They will tell you that your price is too high. They will tell you that, well, you know, we're concerned about the budget. That's not what they're concerned about at all. They're throwing that up. We call that an objection of convenience. It's convenient to say it's not emotional, um, it's subjective, so you can fight that all the way to the bank. What their real concerns are is exactly what you said. It's risk and it's change. Yeah. People will say they love change, but um, you ask them to change something about their organization, their work processes, how they're doing business, what they're doing, and they are incredibly risk adverse. If what they're doing is good enough, they can, if they can get away with what they're doing, even if it's problems every day, if they can get away with it, they're likely to stay with what they've got than jump. And to go back to the theme, right now, when we're faced with uncertainty in the next, next six to 12 months, they're not going to jump unless they absolutely have to. So yeah. our job is to make the value high and reduce the risk. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, I notice and I struggle with, uh, the, you know, the personal aspect, the personal loss of that change. Um, if I'm the person who stood up 
uh, for a uh, purchase and a change and it goes badly, um, the least important thing is the fact that the company that I work for wasted a bunch of money and time and resources. It's my personal career risk. It's my personal reputational risk that is often much more important in that buying decision than the financial risk that you can identify. And it takes, it takes um, some trust with your seller to actually get them to admit that. Um, but you can almost always safely assume that that is uh, being calculated into the, into the pros and cons on part of it. Absolutely. You know, one of the most ironic things on this topic that we see is that for many buyers, it will be the first time they bought this product or service. So they're concerned about, is it going to work? Is it going to work as promised? Whatever it may be. From the salesperson, they've been through this many times. They, if they're successful, that they've sold many customers, they've worked with customers through implementation. So they know customers who have been successful, they know what it took, but they don't share that with their prospects. It's wow. one of the most valuable things that they've got. Don't talk about the product, talk about your other customers and how they've been successful. Introduce them. That, that is the goal to reducing the risk. And you've got it as a salesperson when you walk in. If you've been selling the same product for a few years, you know customers who have been successful. At least I hope you do. So to be able to share the successes, to be able to connect customers like this, that is really reducing risk and that's bringing a whole heck of a lot of value to the equation as a salesperson. Yeah, you're actually, you're, you're very right. Couldn't agree more. Um, when I, I, I have in the last month, I've been kind of maybe getting myself twisted around an axle or getting overdramatic about a tiny detail, and that is language. And when we talk about the customer's buying journey, um, it's important to figure out journey to where. <laughs> when, when, we're a seller, when we're a seller, we think it's a journey to close, but to a customer is a journey to an outcome. And, um, and the, what, when the salesperson is dancing up and down because they got a close, the customer is um, experiencing the cold sweats of nervous because now they have finally made a decision for which they are accountable. Yeah. And think of the two different emotional states on the opposite side of that phone call when the, a deal is closed and you suddenly... Um, so I'm, I'm kind of harping on the language of the clothes, but when you see the reality of the difference between those two mental states, um, I argue that maybe language is more important than we're giving it um, credit for. Gosh, Mark, I could write a book on that. Oh, perhaps I did. <laughs> it's, when, this is the fascinating thing, and you're so right. What's the destination? You talk to the salesperson, and naturally enough, the destination is getting the order. When we talk to customers, we've now talked to about 2,500 buyers. So when my team talked to buyers, we asked them, take, them through, take us through what happened in your journey, right from the start through to the end. So they kind of take us through their journey. You know what? They very rarely mention that they placed an order. It's that insignificant to them. They'll talk all about what they did in terms of scoping what they needed to do, aligning people, getting people on side. They'll talk about that. They may talk about negotiation. They may. They may talk about an RFP, maybe. 
but they very rarely talk about what happened when the person got the order because they move then into their implementation, the early stages of implementation, where they're getting success and what were the challenges. So it's really interesting. Your point is so well made. And language, we do a very interesting exercise in one of our workshops. In the morning, we ask salespeople to take their, their top 10 opportunities and forecast when they're going to close them. We actually give them a list of their top 10 opportunities and say, write a date on, on when you'll close the business. And then we, we do that. Then in the afternoon, we give them a list of 10 opportunities and we ask them, write down the date when you think that the customer will be ready to commit and buy. And the first thing we normally get is, wow, I, I'm not sure. There's a lot of things this customer is going to do. And we say, well, give it a best shot. Of course, you may have guessed, it's the same 10 opportunities, right? Yeah. It's the same question. When do you think you're going to close it? That's full of the ego, machism. You know, I'm going to close this. I'm going to make my quarter, whatever it is. When you ask them, well, when do you think the customer will have got through all of their machinations? They'll have got everybody on side, purchasings involved, proposal, negotiation, whatever it is, terms and conditions. When do you think the customer is going to be in a place to make a firm commitment to you or another supplier? They then get lost in all the detail the customer's got to go through. So there's language for you. So we actually say, stop ever asking salespeople about when they're gonna close business. Just eradicate that and start saying, when do you think this customer would be in a position to make a commitment? Yeah, I, uh, I, I love that. We, we harped on that when I was um, at one of the big sales training companies is that uh, close date is, when you're putting that in your forecast, because you can't push a rope, you better be putting a date when the customer is ready to buy because our desired close date means nothing. And by putting our, as you said, you know, our, our uh, prideful egoic uh, close date when we want to close is an ingredient in forecast inaccuracy. Um, and we know how good that is. Right. <laughs> um, so um, I also have, you know, with this burr, in my under my saddle that I've got about language, I have a bunch of words that I hate. And I'm going to give you my words, and I'd like you to, to share whether, you know, how much you agree, and then if you have any other words that you'd like to see erased from the sales lexicon. Uh, close is the one, but qualify. Oh. <laughs> or a lead. What, what customer ever thought of themselves as a lead? Um, oh. And after the sale, yeah. It, most of my clients, there's no such thing as after the sale. It's between sales. Yeah. <laughs> and you better start acting like it. Uh, uh, can, can I add, add a term that I would like eradicated? Yes. Above, above the funnel. Oh, man, yes. <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's nothing. If, if something is on your radar, <laughs> it's got to be managed. It's not above the funnel. That's thin air. <laughs> and you know, what, what is the customer doing then? What are, have they decided to, have they decided that status quo is no longer um, acceptable? And are they self-informing? Because at that point they're involved in a buying decision and just because they're not returning your phone calls doesn't mean they are above their 
decision. Absolutely. Process. In fact, when we work with our clients on their, their funnels or pipelines, call it what you will, um, we change all the terminology to the steps of the buying journey. It shouldn't qualify, negotiate. These are not terms that customers use. Yep. So we change the whole pipeline to be uh, structured on the buying journey. So yeah, is somebody I, actually in a buying journey? And where are they in that buying journey? Yeah, I'm the same way. Instead of qualify, I kind of like um, discovery. Yep. Is there something else you like to use? Well, you know, it's we could talk about that one topic of qualification. I, I don't believe it's a step. I don't believe it's something that happens. It's something that continually happens. You're always looking to see, is this a good fit? Is this a good fit for the customer? Is this a good fit for us? Should we both invest time in furthering our journey together? So qualify isn't, in my mind, something that is an event. Yeah. It's part of the ongoing process to look at, is this the right fit for both sides of the equation? Um, so that's kind of, so I would get rid of qualify altogether, as, as you've already suggested. Yeah. Discovery, um, yes, the customer is going to be discovering. But the customer isn't so much discovering about what your product. They're discovering about their needs. And that's what we should be help, helping them doing. That's early in the buying journey. If, so when you use the term discovery with a customer, they're often talking about they're discovering what their needs are. They're discovering things like what the constraints would be, what the budget would be, who would be involved. So they're discovering how they're going to move forward in their buying journey. Uh, I love that. Um, I noticed, you know, there's, there's all the research that says customers go through a significant portion of their buying journey before they engage with salespeople. And yeah. there's some people who are so, um, I call it, it's artificial precision because they say 58% of or whatever the number yes. of, of yes. the buying process. And A, how do you measure 58% of any buying process? Yeah. Um, but the fact remains, um, regardless of the number of significant digits, cu uh, customers don't find value in most salespeople. They hate talking to salespeople, so they're going to self-inform elsewhere. And, and they can now. When, right, I, when I was a sales guy in the early, early 80s, they couldn't. They had to phone me to get a brochure. They had yeah. to phone me to get any information about my product. That is not the way today. So how, given the, the availability of information from both you and your competitors, if you're not informing your customers, um, your competitors' content is among those things, right? And then there's consultants and, uh, and other and mm -hmm. friends and colleagues and uh, so forth. Yeah. How do you get help your clients to insert themselves in the customer's buying journey before they're really comfortable talking to your salespeople? That is such a great question and such a great topic. Let's start with what isn't successful. If you're gonna go in and do a presentation on your product, then that is bringing no value to them early in their buying journey. What we should be talking about, how can we bring value early in their buying journey? I'm gonna to return to a theme we talked about a little earlier. You have the knowledge of how other people have gone through their buying journey. When you're at the front end of a buying journey, you are thinking about, who do I need to get involved? What's important? When do we need to worry about this? What are our alternatives? If you can help them with those kinds of things, nothing to do with your product, everything to do with their buying journey. You tell them, well, in our experience, best practices get finance involved very early. 
You'll also need to assemble a team of people representing different functions, different geographies, whatever it may be. So you need to get kind of a decision team together who's going to kind of be the guiding body as you move through the buying journey. So giving them advice, giving them experience on what they need to do. Here's how you scope your requirements. Here's a different kind of path that may be open to you. Here's the implications of each of those. So you're actually helping them in those early stages of their buying journey, not talking about your product because they're not even ready to talk about that. Oh, they may be fascinating in demo, but they're, you're entertaining or educating them. You're not yeah. selling. Yeah, I'm going to, I completely agree with everything you said. I'm going to add one small detail that you could do. If you, whatever you sell, your product, your service, delivers has some differentiation that delivers a an outcome a differentiated outcome for the customer while you're informing the customer about what their who should be involved um, you can subtly say these are the kinds of outcomes you should be looking for and therefore these are the kind of people you should be bringing into the buying process to make sure that you're going to get those outcomes. You're absolutely you're, right. You're planting a seed for yourself to win because you're alerting them to an outcome that you're the best in the world at delivering. And uh, that has to be done artfully, but when the, the opportunity to shape that part of the buying process um, is often the majority of that is before they've called any salespeople. Yeah. That is what we call changing the buying journey, changing what would naturally happen. They may end up there. I'll give you a very real example to kind of ground this. If you're selling, let's say, um, a software product that's going to be used by many people, um, the group may be just looking at the features and functions and what requirements they need in the software. They may not have thought about training but you think that your training is really superior. You have a way of training users, maybe through on-demand asynchronous training, whatever it may be. Yep. Uh, that early in the buying journey, you can ask them, you know, what we see is we see many organizations investing in their software, but the users aren't using it because they just don't know how. And training is really important. And you can get them to see that training is something that, that is really going to be something that's going to make a difference for them. So yes, you're wiring it, if you like, for yourself, because you know that you have got some very unique and very powerful training. But what you're doing is you're really turning it into why is it important to them? It's important to them because training is going to increase the success, going to reduce the risk and increase the likelihood of success when they come to implementation. Yeah, I, um, I, I love that, Martin. The, the idea is value and you know, their perception of the outcomes and how badly they desire those outcomes is a movie playing in the customer's head. <laughs> and yes. you have to get that movie to go from out of focus to from black and white to color and color to sound with full special effects. You, That's value. And customers will only progress in building that movie as far as they need to to make a decision. Uh, if, if a fuzzy black and white with silent movie gets them across to, to decide to buy, that's all they're going to build in their head. Yep. Uh, it just turns out, though, that then 
they don't see enough value that they're going to grind you on price. So it is in everybody's best interest to help that customer construct that movie in their head in as much detail as possible. And as you're doing so, you're adding value. You are differentiating. You may not even be talking about your product, but you are differentiating yourself. You're adding value, and you will be somebody that is relevant and that is brought into the buying journey. Exactly. Um, which means now you're the first person brought into that buying journey. Uh, when they are, when the next prospective customer is in the early parts of their buying journey and they talk to their friends and colleagues saying, uh, I'm, I'm just going through this now. Can you tell me what you did? And if somebody says, well, you know, I called Martin Lewis from yeah. that company because he really helped me think through the process. Uh, now suddenly you're the first person involved in the customer's buying journey and life gets a lot easier. Without a doubt. And, this is not just a theoretical, aspirational goal for salespeople. Every salesperson can do this. It doesn't matter what you're selling. It doesn't matter if you are selling the most commoditized item in the world. In fact, I have found some of the very best salespeople who sell a total commodity. It doesn't matter what you sell, who you sell to, you can practice this science and art. You know, was it you and I who are saying that some of the salespeople who are best able to sell value and differentiate yes. are the salespeople who operate in what we would think of as the most undifferentiated commodities? Um, it's something that really surprised me when I first started my practice 20 years ago, because I, I come from the high-tech sector, and I thought high-tech salespeople were, were the top, the cream. Uh, because we're selling high-tech products, paid very well. Uh, so I thought that kind of high-tech salespeople were right up there. Uh, I was not looking forward to working with people who sell just commodity like paper or pumps. I found examples of the very best selling, people that would shame the best high-tech salespeople all day long who are selling a complete commodity. They are selling the same thing as the guy next door is selling. Uh, but when you find the successful people or the successful companies that the very best sales team I've ever seen is a company that's selling a total commodity, but they have implemented a selling approach and a training program that brings their people up to a level that I think is top quadrant, top 10 of all time, because they are differentiating in the way we're talking about. They are totally differentiating themselves. They are demanding an additional premium on their price and people are happy to pay it because they're bringing so much additional value. Yeah. Um, and you wish that sellers in all industries could have a peek into that environment. Because when I tell um, a lot of my clients that tiny differences in your product, tiny differentiators can make a huge difference to your customer. Uh, sometimes even competitor-proof differences in your, to your customer. Mm -hmm. they, they look at me politely and nod their heads until we walk through it and we experience it. And mm -hmm. um, to be able to, to show somebody selling steel um, and getting a premium for it is, would be such a great lesson for a lot of those salespeople. 
So Mark, I, I, I've just got to make a huge point here. Um, obviously, we believe in professional selling. What we're talking about here is commodity products going out at a premium because of the salesperson. The salesperson is making the difference. There's never been anything more important than that professional selling skill, that they're not differentiating with the product. They're not differentiating with their service. They're not differentiating with any of those ways that so many people strive to do. They're differentiating through the interface with the customer, the salesperson. Absolutely. And I'm going to just make sure that people aren't confused that it's not that the salesperson is more slick or more, more um, manipulative. It's that the salesperson has a superior skills in helping the customer uncover differentially differential outcomes that the customer will experience and getting the customer to value those different outcomes and then doing that. So it is an excellent Absolutely. salesperson able to do that, but it's not a, a glib, slick person. It's a yeah. highly professional salesperson. You know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is that we're talking about selling and buying. We're all buyers. We all buy. We all buy for our own personal use, our family use, or maybe in our professional work capacity, we buy things. How do we buy? Well, I know that there's a, a tire store down here. They may not be the cheapest tire store, but for 20 years, they've looked after me. I trust them totally. I don't go anywhere else now. If they're charging 10 or 20% more for my tires, I'm happy to pay that because their advice and how they look after me is above and beyond what I expect anywhere else. So we all experience this in our own life where we're doing business with somebody where we know we're spending maybe more, but we're happy to do that because they're providing something of value to us. Yeah, Martin, I completely agree. And um, you, you can think of that, but even if you want to go uh, an even quicker example, look at two gasoline stations across the street from each other. Yeah. Why is the one whose price is 10, 20 cents a gallon higher? Why, are they, why do they even exist? Why are they still in business? How do they succeed? Uh, one time I saw 40 cents a gallon difference in price across the street from each other in Oakland, California. Um, and the, the reality is if everybody bought on price, there would only be one vendor of everything. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it would be a sad world. <laughs> that's, that's what we've got to the, with the airlines when you buy an economy ticket because yeah. people unfortunately have many people being forced to buy on price, which is why the airlines have been forced to nickel and dime. I, I'm absolutely convinced the airlines didn't want to start charging for a pillow. The airlines didn't want to start charging for everything. It's the people that buy on price that force them into that. And so that, that is an example of a sad world that buys on price. Yeah, it's, um, it, it is a, a much less pleasant world. Um, yeah. When people and um, Value is stripped out. Yeah, and, and the converse is true. The customers that buy on price are often the customers that consume the most of your customer resources, your selling resources, make your, everybody in your company, um, manufacturing customer service, the most miserable. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, pay their, they pay less of their freight in terms of covering overheads, but they cause the most heartache, pain, disruption and um, those kind of customers are the first kind you should be firing. Yeah. We, we wrote a paper called The Cost of Cheap. 
I love that. that. Yeah. Need I say more, right? Yeah. We wrote a paper on it, but really that's everything. The, the cost of cheap. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, I, you did a couple times many years ago was um, those customers, when we wanted to fire them, there's no good way to fire them, but the best one we found was raise their price. Yep. Yeah. Um, and at that point, one of two things happen. <laughs> yes. Right? They leave or they stay. And if they stay, they may not be any less disruptive or make your, your employees more miserable or expedite orders unreasonably any less often. But your people in, in the plant where I worked at, in a company I worked at, um, when they would call in and raise a ruckus, I could tell manufacturing and inside sales, well, you know, they're, paying, they're now paying a price premium. So they're paying a doofus factor. They're paying a PETA factor. Um, PETA is pain in the... Yeah. Um, so th they're paying a price that reflects uh, the burden they put on us. And uh, suddenly they got better customer service and we were all happier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I was working with a client of mine just recently and they've been looking a lot at pricing action and they have a very, very large client. Um, uh, but their, the price was ridiculously low uh, for all the service they were providing and everything else. So they they struggled with this for a couple of months, whether to raise the price or not. And uh, the sales team was saying, if they raise the price, we're going to lose the business. And so they took the they took the decision right the way to the top to the executive of the company because it was that big a customer and that meant that much to them. And they had done the spreadsheet analysis of what it's really costing. And the decision was, yeah, we have to raise the price because we're losing money on this. So came the big day. They went into the customer and the customer obviously caught wind of what was happening because it was a, uh, a high level meeting that was being called. Yep. And they said, well, we're, we're putting the price up and it's actually quite a significant increase. Uh, guess what happened? They said, we've been waiting for this. We couldn't understand how on earth you could be making money. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're happy. They didn't even negotiate. They agreed that it was a fair price. Wow. What a, what a life lesson. Uh, yeah for everybody involved. And I sure hope that that became the subject of sales meetings, like these salespeople Absolutely. who were fearful um, and suddenly realizing the value you had that you hadn't priced into your product. Yeah, yeah. we're talking about value, we're talking about salespeople. The one thing that always I, I feel so frustrated about is salespeople walk in without confidence. They're scared. They're intimidated by their customer. You can't be that way. If you don't believe that you're bringing value, you shouldn't be selling that. Yeah. And it's, it, there's no way that see, the whole commercial equation exists. Somebody will pay you for something because they believe it's more value than what they're paying you for. So you should walk in with the confidence that you are delivering value to the company. You're not asking them to pay for something. You are delivering value to them. If you don't believe it, I don't know how you could be successful selling. Yeah. So you've got to walk in with the value and the knowledge and the confidence that you are bringing something of great value to that organization. Uh, uh, Martin, I, that, that's actually from chapter one of my book is that the purpose of any organization is to deliver more value to customers than it costs them to produce. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, we complicate that a lot and we create 
KPIs and measurements and metrics that it's, don't align with that or ignore yeah. it. And it's, it could be just fuzz. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we, we could have a long conversation, but I think we kind of have to wrap this up. Uh, Martin, what a great conversation. Why don't you uh, um, give everybody your contact information again? Terrific. Well, it's Martin Lewis from Market Partners. You can find us at market-partners.com and you can find me and I really welcome comments and thoughts anytime at M-L-E-W-I-S, one word M. Lewis, M-L-E-W-I-S at market-partners.com or of course on LinkedIn. Yep. Uh, on LinkedIn, Martin's first name is M-A-R-T-Y-N Lewis. Um, so don't misspell it when you're searching because you will not find him. Uh, or you Thank can you, Mark. look for his book, How Customers Buy and Why They Don't. Is that on Amazon? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, here we are. How Customers Buy and Why They Don't with its yellow cover. Very good. Um, and yep, absolutely. Amazon and where you buy all good business books, as they say. That's right. Um, so, Martin, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with us. I, I hope we have a chance to, to talk further and, and interface because I think we are very much kindred spirits. Absolutely. I look forward to that as well, Mark. Thank you. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where um, we operate on the principle that value exists only in your customer's mind, which means that your success is all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a great day. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.